I'm Katie. Welcome to Talking With Cancer. Thanks so much for being here. I started the podcast back in February 2022 when I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer called hobnail. And it was a way to keep my close friends and family up to date with my diagnosis and treatment. And that's evolved into what is now season three, where each week it's me plus a guest discussing all things about cancer. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome back to Talking With Cancer. This is episode seven. Yeah, episode seven of season three. I've been really pleased with this series, actually. I was just kind of thinking... We're potentially about halfway through. I'm not quite sure yet how many episodes are going to play out in season three. But it's already been like such a great series. And I thought I'd just do a little recap to start off with. So I've spoken to Dr. Paul Hwang of the Institute of Cancer Research. And that was episode one. It left me feeling very hopeful about the future of treatments for mutating genes such as mine, which is the ROS1 gene. Then episode two, I had my lovely friend Deborah Berryman, who I'm the guru. We had a lovely, deep and meaningful chat about all sorts of things to do with grief, complex grief, relationships carrying on with loved ones after they've died, listening to yourself, listening deeply to yourself, and lots of other amazing things. I spoke to Carly Musa, who is a wellness coach and has quite a lot of influence on social media. She's someone that I would perhaps call a cancer community social media influencer. Not sure she'd agree with that, but it's just an easy way to describe her. She's a lot more than that, by the way. And what's been really nice is that we've become friends since doing the podcast. We've actually met in real life. So that's been lovely. I spoke to the wonderful Vicky Fox, who is the Yoga for Cancer teacher. I've also been doing her classes really regularly over Zoom and they are just wonderful. She does a really great Sunday morning 11.15 class, which I've been doing quite a lot. And it's a great 75 minutes, great way to spend a Sunday morning. Who else have I spoken to? I've spoken to my very own cardiologist, Dr. Alex Lyon in Matters of the Heart. And I've spoken to my dear best friend, Katie. That was last week's episode. So this week's episode is biotech. I speak to a man called Garo Arman, and he founded Agenus. If you want to find out more about Agenus, you go to agenusbio.com. He started the company nearly 30 years ago in 1994, and he is looking at how immunotherapy can be used to treatment with quite a big mission statement at the core of that, actually. I'm going to play out his interview and then I'll chat to you a bit more at the end. I'm speaking today to the founder and CEO of Agenus, which is a biotech company, which we'll come on to what that is and what that means. Thank you so much for joining me on Talking With Cancer, Garo Arman. It's lovely to have you here today. It's my pleasure. It's really great. It sort of happened quite quickly. We got introduced by a mutual friend whose brother, I believe, works for the company. Yeah, for someone who's obviously really busy and running a really important, huge company, I was thrilled that you're able to come on today. So I wanted to just get straight into it, Garo, and just understand a bit about your background. From the research that I've done, I can see that you do a lot of 
good work. You work a lot with children and deprived communities, and obviously you work in treating cancer. So can you just go back a little bit and explain your background and what motivated you to work in this field? Sure. Thank you very much, Katie. It's a pleasure to be here with you. You know, when opportunities like this arise to communicate uh, one's ideas, it's always good to be in a situation where it's closer to heart, if you will. And in my case, for example, I was born in Istanbul, Turkey, of Armenian parents, and my mother was diagnosed with cancer when I was 15 years old. And unfortunately, those days, cancer was sort of like a, a shameful thing to admit. And she told me she felt a lump in her breast shortly after I was born. And but she was too ashamed to even admit it to her husband. Oh, and so many years later, the disease was metastasized. And unfortunately, she died. Uh, there were not very many treatment options for these things. In fact, she was treated with steroids. And when I came to the U.S., I immediately searched for experimental treatments because you know, there was no hope based on treatments that she was offering in the center. And so I brought this lady here, 47 years old, and she died in my arms several months later. Oh. I used to administer to her morphine shots. A very sad outcome. Very sad. I'm now. sorry to hear that. And thank you for sharing that as well. So if we fast forward things, you know, you said, what do I do? What's my background? I specialize in tackling issues that I think I can do based on need. And need is a very important part of course. So there's a need for curing cancer patients. And when I visited Armenia for the first time, I had no connection other than my genome to Armenia because I'd never been there. When I first visited in 2001, I wasn't a tourist, really. I went to the villages to see what the predicament of the people were. And I saw these children in desolate situations and conditions. This was in the post-Soviet Armenia. Right. And so I noticed that things needed to be done. And so you can't help but get involved. And so I founded Children of Armenia Fund, a foundation that is now in over a hundred villages of Armenia. We started with one. Wow. And we concentrate on education, health care, and social issues, economic development, and so on. So that's the short story. Well, I mean, that's very impressive because you've taken personal life experiences and turned that into a hugely successful career where you're really making change, which is amazing. When did you go to the US and what was your kind of career at that time? I arrived in the US fresh out of high school, actually, to go to college. You know, Turkey was a hostile environment at the time when I was growing up. I went to my ministry. I um, was a little bit radical in school. Came to the attention of the Turkish vice principal, even though Armenian school, Turkey had a mandate at the time that every uh, minority school had to have a Turkish vice principal to watch over what was going on. I guess spying on students. So wow. when my grandmother used to tell me that stories of the genocide, um, I got impressed by the 
difficulties that we endured. I started preaching about independent Armenia to my classmates and that came to the attention of the Turkish vice principal. And he physically beat me up and my father noticed that. And he said, you must leave this country uh, before you end up in jail because of your radical idea. So I left and I never went back. And I came to the U.S. to study in college. Mm-hmm. And then some years later, I got fascinated with the field of immunology because my grandmother was an immunologist with having gone to no school. And because I was the first grandchild when I I got sick, she used to come with sheets of cotton and uh, heat them up on the ceramic stove and then put them around my armpits for hours. And I used to wonder, what is this lady doing? (laughs) <laughs> and what it turns out is that she was activating my lymph nodes with heat so that I could fight the disease better. And so that connection and some knowledge of how cancer worked mm-hmm. through schooling and experience and knowledge of the immune system. In 1993, I founded a company called the Genes, which is a company that I run today. And it's been a long haul mm. because cancer, Katie, is a disease where there is a battle going on. It is a tug of war between the disease and the immune system. And I know there are many drugs out there. There's chemotherapy, there's radiation, there's target therapy and all of that. But what's really happening is that these drugs either directly or indirectly allow this tug of war to basically favor the immune system and defeat the cancer. And of course, if there's a tug of war, there are two approaches, right? One, you have to reduce the bulk of the disease here, which is cancer. Two, you have to strengthen the immune system. Now, of course, if you can do both simultaneously, uh, that's a win-win. And of course, doing both simultaneously without harming the patient is where the real trick is. Yeah. Right? So, and that's the trick you're, you're nailing, isn't it? Because I haven't really talked to any of my team about immunotherapy. It's never been presented to me as a treatment option yet. That's not to say it won't be. And so I suppose what... I want to understand is like why are certain cancers able to be treated with immunotherapy and why are others not? So very good question. You're now becoming a scientist Mm. uh, through osmosis, I assume, because you understand some of these basic principles. Now, many years ago, when some immunological drugs like IL-2 were being explored, it was assumed then, based on the knowledge that we had, that the only cancers that would be amenable to immune attack were things like melanoma and renal cell carcinoma, and that's kidney cancer. So, but some years later, with the advent of a new generation of capabilities, tools to be able to stimulate the immune system, it became clear that other cancers can also be tackled with the power of the immune system. So now, 
the question becomes, you know, for example, why do certain cancers like lung cancer can be attacked by the immune system easier than cancers like colon cancer? Why is that? And that brings up the subject of a complex symphony of scientific biological attributes of these cancers. So we call, for example, certain cancers whole cancers and other cancers heart cancers. Mm. But even given a certain type of cancer, there's heart and cold tumors within those tumors as well. So what does it mean, heart and cold? Well, when a tumor is cold, it means that it hides itself from the immune system better. Okay. So when it hides itself from the immune system better, it becomes more a challenge for this cancer to be attacked by the immune system. Other cancers are more visible. And, but what we're discovering now is that there are agents, like some of our drugs, that take a cold tumor and turn it into a hot tumor. And of course, for one of the new drugs, potenzilin, uh, which is a, a very advanced monoclonal antibody that allows, for example, the molecule to attack several components of the biology and bind cells that allow the immune system to be able to come into their job better. Now, it turns out that potenzilumab, which is an antibody that targets for CTLA4, as well as other components of uh, the cellular structure, turns a number of colon cancer tumors, ovarian cancer tumors, endometrial cancer tumors, sarcomas, uh, lung cancers that may start out being cold, but as an exposure of this antibody, they turn out to be hot. Right. Wow, you are a real scientist, aren't you? You have to really understand the science. It's like you said to me, yeah, because this is my world now, I definitely have a greater understanding and I feel a need to understand more. But it's incredibly complex, incredibly complex. And one of the things that I get a bit, um, I sort of feel a bit resentful of is when I hear my oncologist say that cancer is very clever and I kind of, I almost feel myself getting angry and think, don't give it the credit, don't give it that credit. But I know what they mean. And it's like what you're saying, you know, it kind of, um, it figures out how to override your immune system ultimately, which is, is very clever. So there's a lot that you have to understand, obviously, <laughs> as, as the founder and CEO of Agenis. But I obviously was looking it up online and read your mission statement, which is to harness the power of the immune system to bring affordable, curative therapies to cancer patients. And I just wonder if you could break down that mission statement a little bit for me, please. Now, you said something very profound, Katie. You said your physicians have told you cancers are clever. And they are, because remember, cancers start out simply as mutations of a normal tissue. And because these are what we call point mutations, are such random mutations, um, in the beginning of time, uh, when mutations happen, 
In most individuals, a competent immune system shuts down cells that are subject to these mutations. And but in some cases, of course, these mutations cleverly persist and cancer grows, the immune system gets overwhelmed, and there we are, it becomes metastatic. And so it's sort of like the survival of the fittest. And that's why along the way, because most cancers take many years to develop, sometimes over a decade, like it did in the case of my mother, for example. And so along the way, they become smarter and smarter. They adjust to their environment to be able to survive the challenges within the body. So now uh, back to the mission statement, uh, harness the immune system. So certainly, how do we then take patients who have either compromised immune systems or weaker immune systems that are required to fight a person's cancer, or that the cancer is more clever in that person and has the developed over some period of time in a sneaky way to basically hide from the immune system, as is the case, for example, with cold tumors. Cold tumors are the product of many years of evolutionary changes in that cancer cell, or number of cancer cells, that master the art of hiding from the immune system. Mm -hmm. So how do we then harness the power of the immune system make the immune system clever enough to be able to tackle the cancer and destroy it. And this is what our company does. And of course, it's not simple to do this. It's not a single methodology that will accomplish it. And hence our reason for the company having developed a portfolio of armaments of the immune system to accomplish this way. So the immune system is sort of like the military. You can't just have a military with just a army or a navy or an air force or special forces or what have you. You need to have these components that can be summoned to be used when it's the right thing to do. And this immune system is the same thing, basically. And so our company specializes in making sure that we have all the tools that can be harnessed almost sometimes individually to accommodate an individual's own needs and be able to defeat this miserable disease. So that's one. The second piece is, you know, like all commercial entities out there, pharma companies and established bio companies are in the business of making money. And But it is a fact that healthcare costs are getting out of the zone of affordability globally. And of course, U.S. and uh, more developed worlds are the biggest culprits of letting healthcare costs get out of control. And so then if the question becomes, what if you need the immune Navy, the Air Force, the Army, and the Special Forces simultaneously, and you have to depend on four different companies to contribute with their own elements of the military to do this, then you see that the costs escalate uncontrolled. So because each company obviously wants to charge a certain amount for their drugs, and if you need two, three, four drugs, then the cost will be inhibitively expensive. So 
company like ours that specializes in having all these components under one roof and having the capabilities like, for example, biological manufacturing capabilities in-house as opposed to farming it out can contain costs and be able to deliver a combination protocol, a combination regimen for the same price as another company can offer for one drug. Mm. So that's what we are about. So is that very innovative then, Garo, to kind of be a conglomerate of all those different factors, elements? I, yes. mean, I don't find words easily yes. all the time, but you know what I'm trying to say. Yes. Right. And that was that your vision always with the company? From day one. Right. Smart. And it's been running, you say, 30-something years almost. Also remember that when we started, it was almost sacrilegious. This is 28 years ago. Yeah. It was sacrilegious to think that you can summon the immune system to cure cancer. People laughed at me. Don't even think about it. It's impossible. And it took a while. We were way ahead of our time. And of course, you know, not many companies can survive for 28 years without any profitability. It takes a lot of conviction, not just my conviction, but our wonderful, stunning team's conviction to be able to carry out this mission. And I'm very proud of our team because we're driven by a sense of mission. Mm -hmm. I mean, the culprit here is cancer, and we're on a mission to cure this disease. And I acknowledge the fact that it's not going to be easy, but we've already started curing patients, in my opinion, that were incurable before across different types of cancers. And that's a very rewarding place to be right now for the team and for the company. So do you have direct access to those patients that you treat? When you say direct access, well, we obviously, because of regulation, is a big obstacle at times in us directly accessing patients. So we can only access patients through our clinicians that enroll patients in clinical trials. But on occasion, we get exposed to these patients with the institution's consent. For example, this weekend on Saturday, when we have our plenary session at the CITSI conference, and shortly after that, that afternoon, we'll have a meeting for investors and clinicians and the wider community, we will show a videotape of a patient that was recently treated and his disease completely disappeared. Amazing. And that's a very, very, you know, good feeling. It must be so powerful. And I think that realizing as a patient that I can also help people in positions like you, people in research centers and pharmaceuticals, because when they understand more about a patient experience, it can only A, be rewarding and powerful, but also to help them do their job better and to advance in different ways. So I think that's really important. The future, I mean, you've been working in the future all of this time. That's what it sounds like. You are the future, Garrow. <laughs> what does it look like? How close are we to where we want to be? How near are we to your vision? I think, Katie, we have begun the process. It's amazing. And it's not a pie in the sky. It's real. For example, in our meetings with some of the leaders around the world, and I'm not talking about one or two people, I'm talking about dozens of experts, 
when they see the results that you're achieving, they call it unprecedented, something that they have never seen before. And so to your question, we have begun the process. Now, of course, it's a journey. And now we need to figure out, it's almost like, you know, you have multiple battlefields that you need to fight and win in. And of course, you know, you win one battlefield, you go on to the next one, and the next one, and the next one. My job, our company's job, is to make sure that we achieve this in the speediest way possible. Because time is not the friend of a cancer patient. Can you just give my listeners a sense of the scale of a genus? the number of employees, the size of the company, just to give people a sense of the superstar that you really are. (laughs) Oh, thank you very much. I think our team is really the ones that are doing the heavy lifting. And as I said, they're a stunning team. So our headquarters are in Lexington, Massachusetts, where we have approximately 150 people. Then we have our manufacturing facility in Berkeley, California, and Emeryville, California, where we have nearly about 100 people. Then we have our research discovery center in Cambridge, UK, where we have approximately 60 people. And then we have presence for clinical trials in Moscow, in Hamburg, Germany. I know that Moscow is sort of like a taboo world these days because of the tragedy that's going on in Ukraine. But one thing that we need to be cognizant of is the fact that Russian people deserve to be treated just like any other people. So we cannot really exclude anyone because of political considerations and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so we have all of these. Altogether, we have about 600 people in the company. Wow. Amazing. So impressive. And as people want to find you, agenusbio.com, is that right? Is that the best place to start? That's the best place to start. And of course, they can connect with you and get a better sense of who we are. Mm. Listen, it's been great to chat to you. And I think it's brilliant what you're doing and a lovely story as well. And I know you said that you're proud of yourself. And I kind of thought, I bet your mum is proud of you too, you know, looking down on you. And it's incredible that you were inspired at such a young age to help people with Thank cancer. You. you know, maybe I will be knocking on your door at some point, Garrow, for treatment. Who knows? Well, I hope that you won't need it. But when you do, Katie, we're always there for you. Oh, lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much for chatting to me today. Thank you very much. That was Garrow Arman, CEO and founder of Agenus. And like I said, you can find out more about them if you go to agenusbio.com. It was really interesting opportunity, actually, to chat to Garrow because I didn't know a lot about immunotherapy. It's quite complex. I'm still not sure I'm that clear on the science behind it. But like I said, it's not something that's been presented to me as a treatment option. And whether that might change in time, I don't know. But I know that it's being used a lot. And I know that it's you know, a hugely innovative approach. I think what struck me with Garrow is his own personal story and how for him, like caring for his late mother who had breast cancer and losing her as well at a time where obviously it was very different. And then kind of linking that to his grandmother's approach to health and 
the immune system. I thought that was just so interesting. But I think what's interesting as well for me is the idea that so many of the guests I've spoken to have chosen to work in this field of cancer for various reasons. It's so varied. Like I remember when I was talking to Vicky Fox, the yoga for cancer teacher, I was like, why do you work with people who have cancer, you know? And she was just like, because that's just what I do, you know? She didn't obviously say, why are you trying to find a reason? But I think I talked about it also at the end of her episode when I was doing my solo chat. I just find it amazing that there are so many good people out there, I think. I think that's that's the thing. And yet I live a very moral life. I like to think I do. So why am I so struck when other people are, you know, carving out their lives in order to help other people? I don't know. It's funny, isn't it? But I think Garrow is another one of those people. You know, he just clearly had that vision and that focus that he was going to ensure other people didn't have to go through what his own mother went through and what he obviously witnessed firsthand. Yeah, I was just really struck by that. I think it's interesting, again, like talking about my kind of treatment plan and my treatment path and where I'm at with that. There's always this slight underlying unknown for me. How long is Ontrectinib going to work for? Like, what's the window that I have? Like, I've been told there is an average of 12 to 24 months. And again, I wonder, like, in March, I mean, I know it's 22nd of March, 220322 like I know that was the first day I took my treatment and when that year point comes like what will that feel like will it still be working do I count the point where I went back on it after I had that six week break in the summer around the surgery is that the point at which I should think it might stop working after a year or 24 months it's a really funny thing because it's like it's like this sort of life sentence on a treatment. Like when the treatment stops, how will I know? Will it stop? I think it will. I've been told it will. And then what? You know, there are other treatment options for me. There are other drugs like ontrectinib that are out there treating a genetic mutation like the ROS1, which I have. And you know, like I said, I bumped into Prof Popat not long ago and that was our parting words. He said, we've got some great drugs up our sleeve. And I'm also aware of these drugs that are out there being trialled at the moment. So it is this kind of strange feeling of like, I'm on this drug. I find this drug to be amazing because I am living on the whole, what you might call a normal life. I am traveling, I, you know, I'm able to go on holidays and I have even like recently kind of managed to get through a day without having to feel I need that afternoon nap. And I feel a bit guilty about this. I've said that before as well. Like I feel a little bit guilty that I'm feeling so good. And I also feel a little bit anxious that there's going to follow a bad time. These are just feelings that you live with. You just live with this every day. You just get very used to it. Even talking now, I'm like, what was it like before? You know, what was that like? Like not living as though something's going to happen. It's so strange getting used to all of these different feelings, you know? And I think the other thing about the ontrectinib and the side effects and what I'm feeling is like, I'm going to just put it out there. Like I've got constipation at the moment and it's really horrible. 
and it's a side effect. And it's strange that it's suddenly come on. And so, I, of course, I question that and I wonder, is it anything more sinister? You know, it could be a result of the calcium. I'm taking a lot of calcium at the moment because the parathyroid glands were damaged in the surgery. That can be quite common. You know, I now have that and live with parathyroid hypoism. I think that's the right terminology for it. And the point I'm trying to make is that you kind of go, oh, so what? It's a bit of constipation, <laughs> you know, and there's other stuff like there is other stuff. My hair does get thinner. That does kind of, I mean, clumps and clumps of my hair fall out in the shower and that's untractinib related. I get a few dizzy spells every now and then. You know, I do get that fatigue, not as bad as it was, I have to say, but I still do get it. This funny taste that I have in my mouth, which I've said before, everything tastes sweet. So my taste buds have been affected by the untractinib. I'm sure there's other stuff. Oh yeah, that's another thing. It's really interesting, actually. I tend to kind of, not feel the need to do a wee. And then I realise I haven't been to the toilet for a while. And then when I go, it's like the longest wee ever. And I mentioned that because I think it's quite important. One of the things that they told me early on was that one of the side effects can be a urine infection. And I actually responded and said, you know what? I think it's more likely that those people with urine infections are holding their wees and not going because something happens where you don't know you need to go. So there's that. And the other thing, which I know because when I stopped taking the ontrectinib, I had really bad withdrawal, is that the treatment stops me from getting any kind of muscle pain or ache, which again, you'd go, oh, wow, that's amazing. So like I could climb up a really steep hill and not feel it at all afterwards in my calf muscles. And what I was saying about when I came off the ontrectinib for the surgery was that I had the most excruciating withdrawal. It was just total and utter agony in my muscles. Like I could barely walk, they were so sore. Um, and I'm also really mindful of that, you know, if and when I have to come off this again, or, you know, I kind of think, can we try and do that gradually, come off the drug so that I'm not exposed to that kind of withdrawal. Maybe that's not possible. Maybe that wouldn't change it. But on a couple of these Facebook groups that I'm on, people have said, oh, has anyone else had this really painful muscle ache when they come off their targeted therapy? And then I kind of pipe up and go, yeah, I have. It's okay. So there's lots of funny different feelings. And also I think you can feel them at different stages when you're on this drug. So again, like I say, it's amazing that I'm taking this drug, but there's lots of funny different feelings that flare up around that as well. So yeah, I think like that was kind of what I wanted to share really, all the feelings that come with that. I just wanna say thank you for sending in the voice notes. I'm really enjoying receiving these voice notes from you. And I, I just wanna say like no pressure to any of you listeners that wanna do one or feel awkward about doing one. I only want you to do it if you feel comfortable doing it. The idea is just to give people a voice and a platform to share their story, whatever that is, however you're impacted by cancer. This is a little voice note section where you can send me a two minute voice note and tell me what's gone on. And this week we hear from Paula Milanovic, who 
approached me on Instagram or I might have approached her. She has an Instagram page called Bladder Graffiti and she has a blog, actually. In fact, her recent blog, which is really positive, was really lovely and it mentioned me. Um, it's called Positive Vibes, an Inside Job. I think that, yeah, she's got a very special story and I'm very happy to share that with you now. They say bladder cancer isn't for the weak, and that's certainly true. I was diagnosed in 2016, and since then it's come back six times. I've had 12 operations. I've had 55 chemo installations in my bladder to try and prevent it coming back, but it's come back as recently as October this year. Each time it comes back, it's a, a blow, as I'm sure you can all appreciate. It's uh, very challenging, for sure. But each time it does come back, I try and peel back the onion, as it were, to go a little bit deeper and see how I can support my body to make it inhospitable to cancer and um, move along to prevent it coming back yet again. So when it came back the first time, I really looked at my support and got my cheerleaders all lined up so that they could really support me through everything, through every treatment, through every checkup and everything, because they come thick and fast. And having a cheery word really helps. Second time, I really looked at my diet and uh, moved from being veggie to sugar-free vegan. The third time, I dove deeper into my yoga practice, started doing a teacher training program, which I loved, and I love teaching yoga. The fourth time, I started blogging, or as my mother calls it, bladder blogging, and that really helped me to work through some of the issues and to feel like I was sharing something with the rest of the community. Finally, forgiveness. I forgave my bladder and... This sixth time, I'm working on my stress and anxiety, trying to find creative ways to deal with that. But I'm not going to let bladder cancer dull my sparkle. Paula, thank you for sharing your story and for being so brave. And for listeners who would like to hear more from Paula, go to bladdergraffiti.com, where she writes a really lovely blog about everything that's going on and about everything that she's feeling. So yeah, guys, that's it from me for this week. If you do want to send me a voice note, you can go to my Instagram, talking underscore with cancer, or you can email me hello at talkingwithcancer.com. And I do have a fundraising page. It's a just giving page and it's Talking With Cancer Fund. If you go to my website, talkingwithcancer.com, you can click on the fundraising page. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, I would appreciate anything at all that you can donate. If you think of it as a Netflix or Spotify monthly subscription, I think that's about $9.99 a month. So a one-off payment would be much appreciated and the proceeds go to Maggie's which is the Maggie's Centre organisations that I support and the Royal Marsden Cancer Charity and it actually goes specifically to a thyroid cancer charity. I've chosen both of those charities because they personally resonate with me. Thank you so much for joining me this week guys and I look forward to seeing you again next week where I will be talking to a really lovely woman who I've come to know quite well. Her name is Carolyn Garrett and she's the physical trainer at Maggie's and I go Nordic walking with her on a Monday and we have a really lovely chat. So I'll see you guys next week. Have a good one.